Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Andy, we got a big night tonight. Yes. It is a big night. It felt Grande. like you had to take a, take a breath there. Are you ready for this? Largo. Largo. <laughs> mm, that was Never Say Never, right? I don't know. Thunderball. That's it. And yes, it was Never Say Never and Thunderball because they're the same thing. Because they're the same. Yeah. Yeah. I never saw Never Say Never. I never saw... Ne- Wh- Whoa. <laughs> I never saw Never Say Never. What? They changed his name. I think they changed his name to Maximilian. Yes, they changed his name to... Maximilian, not Emilio. Emilio was Thunderball. Maximilian was Never Say Never. I actually really enjoyed Never Say Never, and I think I know it's not official, but I really enjoyed it, and I think people uh, people give it too much guff. I feel like I need to watch it. Uh, I do enjoy Thunderball quite a bit, so I feel like I'd probably enjoy Never Say Never again, but I just have never gotten around to it. I mean, it was directed by Irvin Kirshner. Yes, if it that, was. Saying anything, Klaus Maria Brandauer. Hmm. Just saying. One day, one he was day. struck by a by a harpoon. Ouch. He was harpooned. It was a float by harpooning. <laughs> a float by that sounds <laughs> so not threatening. <laughs> well, you know, we're t- this is my way to segue into our reminder because you oh. said we have to remind people about uh, a, a Bond thing coming up. Yes, man, is cute. James Bond spanking England or what? Is he? Yeah, I haven't looked really well. It opened, uh, breaking all kinds of records this weekend. Good for him. we have to wait a week. I hope Daniel Craig feels bad. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm going to tell you. I need to tell you something. What's that? I need to say this about that. We commented on some of his comments uh, about uh, James Bond, and I went back and I heard a much longer interview. This was an interview with uh, uh, Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode. They did a live thing at, the, at a, a, a live event at the... The biggest IMAX theater in Britain, apparently, in London. And they had everybody who is anybody from Spectre. It was their big Spectre thing. And uh, they did a, an interview with Daniel Craig. Actually, this that was the only interview where he wasn't live. But everybody else showed up. And then they did a video interview with Daniel Craig. And I'm telling you, he was... You know what I like about Daniel Craig? In these, you can tell he hates it. The press junkets. Mm-hmm. He hates oh, them. Oh, yes. He really yes, he does, does not like them. He doesn't, he, but he, that doesn't mean that he's not considerate with his answers. And I think sometimes um, the, the entertainment media jumps onto his language and his, his colorful use of expletives and only quotes that because it's sexy and it's Daniel Craig and he's fiery and that's his language and et cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm saying? When you hear the complete interview, particularly this one, um, he is as involved and dedicated a, a filmmaker as anybody on this team. And I was really impressed 
especially coming off of that last interview that we that we had uh, cited on this show that was the slash really, my wrists interview. Yes, that was really <laughs> poorly done, and he did say those things, but but it was taken so wildly out of context that you didn't get the sense for how much. Daniel Craig has put into this film. I mean, he's a producer on this film. He helped write the script. He has been there from day one. And and, he said it's been two years. Yeah, yeah. And so I, you know, I just get much more of a sense that he is very much a party uh, to this. He is not a disgruntled ex-Bond. He is somebody who loves the character very, very much. And his only mission, as he says, was to make sure that, that you know, when we, I'm paraphrasing now because of the colorful use of expletives, but uh, his his only mission was to make sure as he's leaving that that they've left it in a really good place, that whoever comes up next can take it and run with it and do something else great and be their own bond. And don't listen to anybody else. Don't listen to anybody. Just go be their own bond. And it was really a great interview. I thought it was wonderful. There you, there you go. That's my follow-up. Well, that That's makes my bond me follow-up. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he's... Yeah. I agree with everything. <laughs> I agree with everything. I'm just a real roller coaster of a conversation, Andy. <laughs> feeling very agreeable right now. <laughs> anyway, we have we have this. The whole point of this is that we have a reminder, right? Yes. What is our reminder? Are we are doing our film board for Spectre? Uh, not this weekend, but uh, the following, right after it opens, we'll be uh, recording that a couple days after it opens, and it should be going live uh, within the week after that. Yeah, because we're do- we're recording that what the Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, so it opens in the U.S. on that Friday, whatever that is, November 5th, I think. 6th. 6th. Opens Sixth on the 6th. We record the 8th. We're going to see it that weekend. We're going to record on the 8th. I'll try and get that up as fast as I very much can. How about that? Uh, I should say, Thanks. and this is, a, this is a very timely I like it. update. Uh, my timely update is that our entire podcast is broken right now. And so you can download in iTunes. If you're an iTunes listener and you're trying to go back to the back catalog... You will have some difficulty going back past The Martian. I'm trying to get these fixed as fast as I can, but it's broken, and I'm sorry, and I'm, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. Uh-oh. What happened? Uh, dumb. Nobody's interested. It has, to do with, it has to do with a slash and a .mp3 and a uh, slash.mp3 thing. Ah. Uh, it's awful. I hate slash.mp3 things. Terrible. Uh, we have a death. We do. We do have a death. How sad is that? Uh, Maureen O'Hara died 95 years old. She just passed away this past uh, Saturday. And uh, she died in her sleep. Seemed uh, relatively peaceful. Died of natural causes. Um, Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, One of the most famous is The Quiet Man, uh, directed by John Ford, with John Wayne. The famous uh, wind blowing through the house scene as he grabs her and pulls her close and kisses her and and uh, I, my first experience with that was, of course, E.T., because that's, uh, that's what E.T. is watching. And uh, Elliot is kind of picking up on that and kisses that girl in the classroom. Oh, she's so great. She was a fantastic actress. I haven't seen enough of her stuff, but I did always enjoy uh, seeing her on screen. McClintock. Did you see McClintock? How Green Was My Valley. Mm, Rio Grande. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Great. Yeah, Miracle yeah. on the 34th Street. That's an annual one over here. So yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's a loss, and uh, it is it is very sad. And I'm how awesome is it that she just died in her sleep? That's the way to go. Here, here. All right, we should probably get into the big stuff.
Let's get into the big it's stuff. It's Listener's Choice Day. I love Listener's Choice Day, Andy. Me I feel like too. We need a, a, a charming uh, bit of pump and circumstance here. Insert Foley sounds of parades <laughs> and happy children. So this is our listener's choice. Andy, what do we do with this listener's choice thing? Why, give, give us a little bit of a background. Why do we do this? When, when did it start? And uh, what's your social security number? <laughs> just kind of tucked that in there, didn't you? I tucked nothing. Uh, we, we really just love hearing from our listeners. We love uh, talking about things that our listeners want to hear. And uh, we think it's always fun to kind of throw these listeners' choice episodes in when we can to just kind of, you know, spice things up a little bit and as opposed to getting uh, stuck in a rut of all of our series all the time. You know, we get to actually pick something that uh, somebody out, out there wants to listen to, which we think is great. And then we invite them on the call, have them on for about 10 minutes, and then we talk about the movie. So we've been doing this, gosh, I think our first one was, uh, was our first one? With uh, Stephen Smart in The Mood for Love? I I think it was, in The Mood for Love. Stephen Smart, who is now a part of the team. Look, you can really go places. That's right. (laughs) You too. (laughs) That was back in uh, January 2014. That was our first one. So it's uh, getting close to two years of these listeners' choice now. Super fun. I really enjoy this. And so you had posted something on on Facebook and and, uh, offered people a chance to to comment and get their votes in. Like what... The big question was, what would you uh, want to talk about if you won the Listener's Choice Drawing? And I have to tell you, I was so excited by the responses. There wasn't one movie. There was one movie. There was only one movie that I (laughs) was moved to rage and violence about. Everything else I was very excited to see. I I think that they would be wonderful movies to talk about. Were there any real highlights for you? There was a lot of great options. Some that I'd never seen or heard of, like Lake Mungo. Hadn't heard of that one, but it certainly piques my curiosity as one that I want to check out. Um, Some uh, that I am not a fan of, but I'd happily talk about them if our listener picks that one. So, But for the most part, I mean, there's just a lot of great options on here that I would be happy to talk about. Absolutely. I was I was very excited to hear some of these. Heat. Oh, Heat. What a great suggestion. The uh, Fly. The Fly. Fantastic. Um, and of course, Clue. We're big fans of Clue. Yeah, that was a great suggestion uh, from the good uh, Ben Lott, friend of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, we have There were a couple of, of great ones, uh, foreign films, uh, great Spanish language films that, um, that you went and watched immediately, I think. Is that what you... <laughs> Not any of these them. ones. <laughs> Not any of these ones that were yeah. suggested. This was a different one, but yes, there's a there were a number of Spanish films that were put on here too. So, and I think they sound very say, interesting. Oh yes, uh, th- these are great. I, I think it's safe to say that we will never ever be talking about UHF because <laughs> it is neither of our guilty pleasures. Right? Please tell me it doesn't rank. Oh, haven't even seen pleasure. it, and uh, it's certainly not ever had the urge to. <laughs> Great suggestions all the way around. I'm very excited about um, about that, except for UHF. Uh, so That's now we have the drawing. You have the random uh, number generator. You have the 800 sided die. Mm-hmm. And so, how does this work? Uh, you give me a drum roll, and I hit the button and pick a number, and uh, whatever number corresponds to that person from our list, uh, that person is going to be. Uh, joining us on the show uh, after our next series, our Hayao Miyazaki series. So at the end of November, we'll be uh, doing this Listener's Choice episode. All right. Here we go. Here's a drum roll. 
And the winner is Diego Luis Contreras Lopez. Hey, Diego. Fantastic. Oh, this is going to be great. He was one with a lot of great Spanish language uh, uh, films. This is going to be really fun. It is. And then at the end, he threw in the man who shot Liberty Valance over on Twitter. So he threw in, <laughs> he threw in a lot of options. Oh, that's really so, good. That, that's very exciting. Uh, so we'll send you a note, Diego. And then uh, of all of those movies or anything else, you can pick what you want us to talk about on the show. And uh, we are going to watch it, have you on the show, and uh, chat about it with you. Fantastic. Great fun. Another listener's choice in the bag, Andy. Congratulations. Yes, indeed. Looking forward to it. We've got some more follow-up. This follow-up is from uh, uh, the good uh, Ben Lott. The Blot Spot this week. He does come in talking about The Innocents. And I think of the series I am most proud of our choosing this film based on his response. Absolutely. Uh, The Blot Spot this week says, The Innocents did an impressive job of creating a creepy atmosphere. The combination of lighting and music sets the tone perfectly. And that's a really good thing since the whole movie is tone and atmosphere. The best part of the film is the ambiguous nature of the whole thing. I appreciate that it didn't commit to the existence of ghosts, since I'm not a big fan of ghost stories. I never understood Miss Giddens' thought process, though. She seemed to constantly make odd leaps of logic that I couldn't comprehend. I started to feel like the ambiguity was going away as her actions became less logical. Still, for a genre of movie I hate, this one was so well made that I didn't mind the scares. Your rank 27 out of 207, my rank 104 out of 207. There it was. There was that golden line. Still... For a genre of movie I hate. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I call that a win. I do, too. I think The Exorcist, uh, another one that uh, Ben watched for us, is way down at the bottom of his list. So uh, <laughs> I know. So this is definitely a win. This is definitely a win. Shall we tell the people where we're from? Where are we from? Next reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hello. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the final in our Horrible Children Halloween Spectacular series with Fritz Kirsch's 1984 film, Children of the Corn. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever obeyed he who walks behind the rose, you should absolutely head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And with that, let's head on over to Scotland to check in with Stephen Smart, who's out in the corn right now. Hey, guys. This week's movie was The Long Hot Summer from 1958, directed by Martin Ritt and starring Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, Lee Remick and Orson Welles. This week's winner was at Brendo61, who nailed it on Image 3. So congrats at Brendo61, you're entered into the Pony Pies hat. As always, a new challenge starts Friday, so thanks guys and see you later. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers Andy I'm pretty excited about my movie are you well you know the thing is Maggie Smith Dame Maggie Smith mm-hmm. she's a charming old lady right <laughs> yes, I love is. her as McGonagall she's like a she's like the grandmother that we wish lived here in my house, like she's so. When I saw this trailer for uh, for uh, Nicholas Heitner's new film, The Lady in the Van, 
written by Alan Bennett. It is just wonderfully charming and sweet and small in the very best way. A man forms an unexpected bond with a transient woman living in her car that's parked in his driveway. It reminds me a little bit of the vibe I got from uh, um, what was the the recent uh, Bill Murray uh, thing, St. Saint, St. Uh, Vincent? Yeah, St. Vincent, right? Where it's just this really unlikely relationship with a crazy old person. Right. Uh, and and I just I just love where it, it takes you. The, the difference here is that there is more culture behind uh, Dame Maggie's character, where she used to drive, uh, uh, apparently used to drive a, a, an ambulance during the war, and uh, she, just, she just has a lot, uh, a lot of history behind her that she brings to her. Uh, James Corden is in it. I love James Corden. Oh, yes. I think he is a charming uh, fellow, and I wish that he was—I I sort of wish, even, even though I like the show that he does, The Night Show— the you know it's yeah. it's dark i'm james corden show uh <laughs> i really like the show i, I kind of wish he didn't do it because i want to see him be a fantastically funny hollywood star like i want to see him in more movies i want him to be yeah. that guy i i half agree and i also just love some of the stuff he does on his uh late show it just cracks <laughs> me up so the, much you see the bit where he had stevie wonder drive him to work i didn't see <laughs> He needed a ride, so he had Stevie Wonder drive him a ride to work. He didn't really drive, but it was really funny. Uh, he's it, the, the whole the whole uh, bit about this movie. Back to the lady in the van. I I am very excited about seeing this. Nicholas Heitner. Um, he I I don't know a lot uh, of Nicholas Heitner's work, uh, but I do. the The only thing I have seen is the Madness of King George, and it was a long, long time ago. Uh, but it was fantastic. This was the uh, Nigel Hawthorne, Helen Mirren, Rupert Graves. Um, fantastic film. I haven't seen anything since, I don't think. I've seen that, The Crucible, and The Object of My Affection, all of which I liked. Um, Still, so, uh, all in the 90s, right? I mean, yeah, it's been all a in while. the 90s. I mean, he's only done a couple movies in the 2000s. Um, I think mostly he's a stage director. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm. I, I just think this is a very. It's a very small and very innocent film compared to what I know of what he has done, and so I'm excited to see it. How did this uh, trailer hit you? I agree. I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed the the feel of it. I mean, and I agree. Maggie Smith's just just always watchable. She's just fantastic. Um, it has a vibe that uh, that I connect with that I think is very sweet, and and uh, but it has that kind of that cute quirky old person sweetness you know um and so yeah i'm i'm looking forward to this one i think it looks pretty interesting and dominic cooper is in it i guess yes dominic cooper is in it i didn't even say that out loud but uh yes he is he is in the film and apparently jim broadbent too but he's not in the trailer at all <laughs> yeah, no, that's weird right yeah uh so uh yes dominic cooper uh leading back into his well of course he's in Agent Carter, uh, he plays Howard Stark on Agent Carter, but going into his uh, 2016 Warcraft. That's uh, right. Yes. He's in Warcraft. Well, what's funny is Dominic Cooper is one of the top-billed people, but he's only labeled as theater actor. Yeah. And he's not the guy. Like, I'm, who's the actor who's playing the uh, the priest? The man, right? Yeah, the man. Oh, I thought that was Looks Roger like, Allum. Yeah, it is Roger Allum. There's a guy that I do know. Uh, but didn't know I knew until we just started talking about this. Holy cow. He was in The Book Thief? V yeah, for he's Vendetta? He's been in a ton of stuff. How have we not talked more about him? 
Roger Allen series. It's coming out January 15th, 2016. So we're we're heavily into the 2016 movies now on the trips. I don't think I think yours is is yours 2015 too? Mine's or 2015. It's 2015. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Didn't see that coming. What is it? I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> Mine is Don Verdine, which I, I want to be good. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's gonna be good. I don't either. Jared Hess, <laughs> Jared Hess is directing it, co-wrote it with uh, Jerusha Hess, um, the uh, the pair behind Napoleon Dynamite, yep, and Nacho Libre, and Gentleman Broncos, all of those films. Um, this is the next on the list, and I this is like I said, I want it to be good. I think it could be really funny. Yeah, uh, this this film, Don Verdine, it premiered at Sundance last year, and according to IMDb, it's opening December 11th, probably a relatively limited release. Hired by an ambitious small-town pastor to find sacred relics in the Holy Land, a self-proclaimed biblical archaeologist comes up short, and his attempt to cover up his failure fuels a comic conspiracy from the filmmaking team behind Napoleon Dynamite and Nacho Libre. It stars Sam Rockwell, Amy Ryan, Jermaine Clement, love him, Leslie Bibb, Will Forte, Danny McBride. I just want this to be good, like I said. Um, and, you know, I just saw something in the news about some, gosh, who was it, Pete, who was just busted? It was like the the CEO of Hobby Lobby was just um, busted for importing uh, religious icons from Iraq or something. Well, that he wanted had... to use them in his uh, craft book. <laughs> yeah, right. He was doing some crafting, some scrapbooking. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you don't know. I mean, when you go to the high-end scrapbook fairs, they are trading some crazy <laughs> stuff. When you say book, it's in quotes. It's in right, right. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> Somebody needs to make that movie. There you go. That's the movie I want to see. <laughs> go ahead. So, you know, I, I don't know. Because of that was that was in the news this past week, that made me think, or when I saw this trailer, it, it kind of... It made me laugh that it just seems like it's uh, coming true. So here it is. Uh, again, I, I want it to be funny. I want it to be good. I don't know if it's going to end up being that way. But gosh, Sam Rockwell, come on. I want you to be in a great movie again. So. You know, it's funny. This Leslie Bibb, she is the quintessential evangelical Southern wife. Yes, she oh, is. Oh, my goodness. She nails it here. She nailed it in <laughs> She was just a very similar character at Talladega Nights. Uh, she's she cracks me up every time I see her on screen. Anyway, I agree with you. I deeply want this to be successful. I think the trailer. I I have. I think it's way too all over the place, even as a trailer, uh, to to equal anything that um, feels like it's going to be. It's a, it's it could very well be that it's a bad trailer. That it's just a. It's a bad trailer that's strung together with some cockamamie weirdness, but uh, I did not connect with it. The problem is I connect with everybody in here, and I want them to succeed so badly. I just don't see it. Uh, so. That's where I am with it. Yeah. So it, it makes me sad because I, I think that there could be something there, but yeah, <sighs> I don't know. Yeah. All right. But did you say when it comes out? Apart from 2015? Yeah, December 11th. All right. There you go. There you go. Well, Andy, clearly, there is no room for people who watch public television. No room! No room! Every child is afraid of the dark, the unknown, 
the nightmare. In Gatlin, Nebraska, that nightmare is in the corn. <laughs> Stephen King's Children of the Corn. Praise God! Praise the Lord! From Stephen King, the author of Carrie, The Shining, The Dead Zone, and Christine, an adult nightmare. <laughs> Children of the Corn. Stephen King's Children of the Corn, an adult nightmare. Children of the Corn, Andy. 1984, directed by Fritz Kirsch, written by George Goldsmith, based on the uh, short story in Night Shift, from Stephen King's Night Shift uh, of the same name, Children of the Corn. Mm-hmm. This is the fourth in our Horrible Children series, and I think we should probably start uh, with an apology. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? Probably. <laughs> Children of the Corn is a terrible film. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it is. A, it's terrible. It was a terrible experience watching it, and uh, I can't wait to hear how how it shook out for you. I, uh, it, it's a terrible way to, to end. And as I, I put on Twitter, I feel like I've been punked. My memory of this film is so much different than my experience watching it. I should not have watched it. I should have just <laughs> done the show based on my memory. It would have been a great m- film. Yeah. Didn't we have a term for that somewhere in our, uh... <laughs> in the lexicon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up. Uh, how did it, how did it hit you? I had never seen this when I was young. I didn't see this until uh, a couple years ago and uh, just trying to flesh out some of my uh, holes in my Stephen King uh, filmography and really didn't care for it then. And so it was relatively much more fresh in my mind. And uh, it was on our list anyway. And I'm not sure why. I think I I, I don't know if we couldn't think of any other movies with bad kids or what, but... (laughs) Well, that was a failure on our part. And and I'm going to take some of the blame because I think I probably was more enthusiastic about the movie than you were because my memory of it was generally positive. Oh, how wrong I was. Mm-hmm. This movie is dumb. I mean, it is plum stupid from the moment the first character opens its mouth in that ridiculous voiceover. Yeah, the voiceover is terrible. I, I will say, okay, I'm... There is something that I really do enjoy about this film. <laughs> and I think this is fair to say. I really enjoy the music by Jonathan <laughs> Elias. <laughs> I like the little creepy uh, choral uh, kids singing. Uh, you know what? I'm going to give that to you. I agree with that. Because, you know, I don't think that that's going to affl- affect any of our flick chart ranking. <laughs> I don't either. I don't think this movie is going to win any vote based on the music. I don't either. I no. don't either. Uh, so where did the movie, where does the movie fail for you? This is going to be an interesting conversation because it's not a film that works for me. I read the short story, but it's been a very long time since I read Night Shift and I don't really remember it. I refreshed my memory uh, with kind of a plot summary on Wikipedia. So I've got that in my head. And it's very then, different, if I remember. It's very there was much more of a focus on the couple and fertility well, and and it's it's it is different. And then um, the film was actually remade. The interesting thing is that uh, Donald Borchers, who uh, produced this back in uh, eighty four, 
for New World Pictures, he um, he had the script. The original script, I guess, was written by Stephen King, and then they went to George Goldsmith, who who uh, rewrote it. I guess um, either Don, Donald Borchers or Terrence Kirby, one of the two producers, really felt that um, the, an audience was not going to be happy with a film that basically ends with your protagonists getting killed and that the kids were the antagonists. They just really felt like an American audience wasn't going to be able to handle that. So they said, you know, we're going to have to rework this script. We need to have the... Oh, and then the other thing is they they needed the couple to be more likable. Because in the original Stephen King short story, it's a fighting, bickering couple that um, they're driving across the country uh, to move, trying to... They're close to, I think, getting a uh, divorce. And so trying to save their marriage, they drive uh, across the country to California to go take a vacation. As they're um, coming through Nebraska, then all of this stuff happens, and they end up getting killed. Um, the producer felt that, you know, we need to have the couple survive, and we need to have them resolve their relationship by the end of the film. All of those things, I think, were mistakes. That being said, uh, Borcher was such a fan of the original script and and really wanted to do it right that in 2009, he actually got it made for the Sci-Fi Channel. And I actually watched that as well, just to kind of compare. And it is much more in line with um, at least the Wikipedia plot synopsis of the short story. The couple bickers constantly, and to a point where I really hated both of them. (laughs) They were so unlikable. It was very frustrating. And uh, the kids are just all evil. And then both of the the protagonists get killed and the, the children the children and he who walks behind the rose are victors. It was a very interesting, different take on the short story, and I guess closer to King. Of course, that being said, Stephen King um, did say that uh, you know he does not want. Uh, he I think that uh, they sent him a um, a letter to his uh, to his attorney or something, and he said I want. Uh, or his attorney wrote back and said. You know, Stephen King wants nothing to do with the remake. Basically, he uh, he, uh, uh, I guess, wrote off the fact that uh, um, they were going to redo it and all that stuff. I don't know. I think that for him and his baby, his 1977 short story, to ha- to see a crappy movie made from it, and then to have like seven sequels from that crappy movie and a remake, I you know, it's it's kind of mind boggling that it, this thing has lived so long. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I I've been trying to find out to figure out what the what the allure is of of the story. Uh, I I think there is there's first of all there's a there's a general. I think we have culturally a generalized. Um, it's easy to feel a generalized sense of fear around uh, farms, right? There is a lot of mystery in high stalks of corn. Right, oh, yeah. I think it's really easy to find that that thing. Also, there are a lot of of crazy implements that can be used in scary ways, right? Absolutely. Um, and uh, and so I think there's there's that. There's a lot of mysticism around corn. I mean, the children of the corn. I think technically, I mean, you they're it, Mexican people are technically children of the corn. If you go by the the Mayan um, uh, legends that. Um, 
you know, that the that the gods came from the corn. They were born of the corn, and thereby their ancestors are children of the corn. And so, you know, there is a lot of sort of religious mysticism around corn that I think is is really important. This film celebrates none of that. Uh, and and uh, I mean, it, I guess it sort of does. Uh, but but in the way that it celebrates the whole fertility ritual, uh, that, for me, is where the film falls completely apart. This is a film for me that where there are two things going on. There, one, there is this religious spectacle of children who are so indoctrinated into, um, into uh, evangelical, you know, this bastardization of evangelical religion, that they have killed all the adults— and there's this supernatural element of this of the you know the tremors worm uh, under the cornfield, <laughs> right? Right. And it ends in a Saul Bass spectacle <laughs> yeah, with the animated fire coming up from the ground. And and I found myself really liking the idea of the first part. Right. That's a movie I would sit through today if you really like. Give me a horror movie where the children rise up, and they're the things that are legitimately to be feared. But instead, they then we have this this whole mystical underbelly of the corn that, and it just is it it's so terrible that the implementation of of what I think is the good idea, even though it's not great, I could sit through the rest of it. I just I really I found it really just I so easily distracted. Uh, it was tough to get through. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that make oh, I, sense? Yeah, I totally see what you're saying. It was, um, yeah, I, this is one of those movies that came out at a time where I think the people who who kind of continued this kind of cult classic nature of the film um, saw it at the right time in their lives where they still can kind of watch it and enjoy it and and kind of, you know, just just kind of click with it. I mean, I was I was trying to find people who had like four or five star reviews on on Letterboxd just to see what they had to say. And, you know, I, I think I only found a couple of them. And one of them, uh, you know, said, showed the girlfriend this for the first time. For some reason, it tends to get dogged by people, but I've always considered it one of the classics. I love it. Outlander! So it's one of those things where I think when you click at the right moment with that when it came out it's still something that you can latch on to and you're probably the person who's going to go watch all of those sequels and remakes and everything um but for the most part it's especially for you know me who who uh you know never saw it i, I watched it once i was like gosh this is just pretty uh, atrocious as far as uh, uh filmmaking goes it's just it's I don't know. It's just, it's really poor. That being said, I have been involved in many low-budget films. This was, <laughs> this was a low-budget film. And I understand, like, why the people involved in it are so passionate about it. I understand why, uh, it, why you know, people kind of can still click with it. Because there is something about that camaraderie you have when you're working on something that is really low-budget. And um, those people, I mean... Uh, all of these, uh, the the filmmakers. I mean, you've got uh, 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 Fritz Kirsch, you've got uh, you know uh, um, Courtney Gaines, Linda Hamilton, John Franklin. They're all still really uh, big fans of the movie and fan. Uh, well, and I'd say fans of what it did for their careers. I think, um, but uh, I, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that it was like a family when they made it, not so much because it was a 
really good film. It's just it was a fun time, I think. I feel like we're this is this is a little bit of it veers into the volunteers territory where I, I don't want to be too hard on it for that reason. <laughs> Because I know these are like real people making this movie. It doesn't hold up very well, and I think part of it is it's a it's a uh, a challenge uh, to adapt a much more complex short story that has many more layers to it. In a way, when you just want to make the horror film, and they made the horror film, and there's a lot of blood, and there are oh my god, so many hero knife shots, the blade being pulled oh, from goodness, the scabbard. I know. Uh, that I, it, you know, we, well, we just don't need any more. We get it. The kids have a lot of knives. Oh my gosh, they have knives. And it turns out, I remember now, it wasn't a blender. It was right. a uh, meat uh, cutter slicer. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. that was not great. Um, I will say, I, I did like that uh, Fritz did kind of play with that um, a little bit. And he doesn't actually show much most of that. No. Most of the time, it's all just kind of he's pulling an Alfred Hitchcock and doing it where you're not seeing any of those cuts. And it kind of makes you think you're seeing it. It makes you feel like there, it was much worse than it was. Oh, yeah. And and particularly when you compare it to something. I mean, here we are, you know, goodness, uh, 30 years later, and I'm watching, you know, Walking Dead and seeing things that are much more horrifically violent. Like, they have come so far in their uh, ability to... to uh, really depict those kinds of flayings and and bashings and crushings and cuttings on screen uh, in a compelling way. I mean, I I I like them both, but it's just a, it's interesting to see like this. I have a feeling they went more uh, in this uh, direction uh, out of necessity uh, because some of the things that they allude to, I have to imagine, would have been nay impossible to pull off in a compelling manner. Well, and you have to think, 1984, I don't think they would have gotten away with it either. True, true. I think that uh, the ratings board would have really just kind of put the kibosh on all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of that, I, I guess I, I some of the challenge that I have is in the cinematography, um, just in, in choices around the camera. It, it felt very repetitive. It felt like they, they found a pattern, uh, a pattern of you know, where they were going to put the camera, how they were going to set the camera, and how then they were going to cut it together, that it, it just became a very orchestrated series of, of events in the film visually that I didn't find myself moved by after the, the opening sequence. Now, it, none of it is really very uh, exciting. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't stand out. Um, the look of the film, just the, the way of it, the way that it was put together, all of it feels just very economical, like... Uh, like people working on a budget, mm-hmm. and you know, my understanding from listening to them talk about it is, I mean, it was a it was a very difficult thing to make. I mean, it cost. They had one point three million five hundred thousand of that went to Stephen King, and the other eight hundred thousand was the budget for the actual film. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, King got uh, a hefty chunk compared to the uh, the actual budget. But um, I mean, it was one of those things where they were going to keep having bigger, bigger things. As it got to the end, there was supposed to be this thing where Malachi gets pulled through the corn and taken away. And the producer kept coming to them going, you know what? We don't have any money. We've got to cut that. We've got to cut this. We've got to cut that. And things kept getting chopped. And I think a lot of the stuff that we see uh, in the film here is here because it was the necessity of a low-budget production. Let's talk a little bit about uh, our uh, main adult heroes shall we let's uh bert and vicky uh bert uh, was yes. played by uh the young and strapping peter horton right uh who has he has gone on to do a lot a lot of stuff uh, a lot of tv he's on um, 
Um, he's is he on TV right now? I don't think so. I don't think he's on right now. But my goodness, uh, he was on uh, Grey's Anatomy. He did uh, Brimstone. He was Ezekiel Stone in Brimstone for a year. Um, uh, he was uh, he was actually played Scott Fisher in the TV movie Into Thin Air, Death on Everest in 1997. Hmm. Um, but uh, he's been around. Uh, he's been around for a long time. Thirty uh, something. That was the other one he was in for a long time. I that was the big one. That, that was his uh, big that one. He yeah. Did. Yeah. yeah, that's the one where I always remember him from that show. And if you ask me, like, I mean, he's got plenty of credits, 50 credits, uh, TV and film. And I would not have been able to name any of those except Children of the Corn and uh, and uh, 30-something. See, the the thing is, I think when, when was 30-something on, right? That 87, was... 87 to 91. Okay, so immediately, uh, well, a couple of years after that, uh, the show Party of Five comes on, right? Mm-hmm. And that was my introduction to Char- uh, to Matthew Fox, who, if you put them side by side, Matthew Fox and uh, and uh, uh, was it? <laughs> they they look like Peter Horton. Uh, Peter Horton. It's like Peter Horton is just a blonde Matthew Fox. It was like they just they went, and so they were always sort of the same show. It was like Thirty Something was the parents of the Salingers on Party of Five when they were the kids, and the Thirty Something parents were killed on a bus crash or something, and that was the, it was like a sequel. That's you know what funny. I'm saying. That's not really funny. Very funny. Anyway, uh, so uh, Peter Horton, very young. Um, I think he was fine for what the movie was. It looks like he kind of petered out as far as acting goes in 2012. Um, really has kind of taken up the mantle uh, directing and producing a lot of TV since then. Mm-hmm. So that's that seems to be where he's uh, kind of fallen now. Uh, uh, Linda Hamilton uh, had come off of some TV. She'd done a bunch of TV. She had King's Crossing, Hill Street Blues, uh, straight into Children of the Corn uh, in 84. And then same year, uh, released the Terminator. She had, oh, 84 yes. was a big year for her. Yeah. The Stone Boy mm-hmm. was also 84. Three films and Three uh, films. TV series. Yeah. yeah. Hill Street Blues. So she was very busy. 84 was a good year for her. I think, uh, boy, the Terminator was uh, really, is, is. I think it's why we remember her. <laughs> Thank goodness. Well, certainly why I remember her. Absolutely. The problem with this, with her introduction to this film, the, the first scene of the film is her waking up Bert. And she wakes him up. <laughs> she like kisses him and surprises him, and they have a laugh. And the laugh's a little canned, and it's fine. And then she stands up and she starts to sing and dance in the hotel room. And it's it's so hard to watch. And it's not because she can't sing. She's a fine singer. She's singing along to the radio. It's fine. The way it's shot is so awkward. They they actively make her look weird. In this sequence, and it, it does not build my affinity to her. It's not her fault. The good Linda Hamilton, she is great. She can sing fine. It's a stupid song, and they make her do it stupidly, and then they shoot her even more stupidly. That's funny. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's a weird half shot. She's not in the right place in the frame, and and they stay on her for way too long. Way too long. <laughs> Anyway, funny. that's how I feel like I met her, and it colors my opinion of her for the rest of the film. I actually like that song. Thank you very much. And it <laughs> See what actually, I mean? The song <laughs> is good, too. Yeah, it's, it made me think of Stephen King, because Stephen King is always writing uh, songs into his books. Totally. And it felt like a Stephen King type of song, something that he would actually put in his book. And I don't know if it's in the 
if it's actually in the book or not, but it just felt like it. And that's that song makes me think of King. And so I kind of get distracted to that part anyway, because all I'm thinking about is Stephen King. No, I'm I'm with you. But doesn't that isn't that kind of a sign that it kind of takes you enough out of the film? Yeah. That's not great. No, it's not. And you know they tried to kind of develop this um this relationship problem that Vicky and Bert are having. And it's kind of there. I you know, this scene um has a little bit of it, but it also kind of um things like the singing distract from it. And it's just one of those things where I think that, I don't know, I I feel like that in the process of putting the script together and trying to find the right way to tell the story, I think they were making some of the wrong decisions because I don't think that some of these choices, like the singing, moves the the story forward in a direction where it's actually developing this tense marital relationship that this couple has oh totally that uh, granted for the the way that they wanted it scripted that does need to be repaired you get little hints of it but there's just not enough there absolutely in fact it in, it introduces much more of a fun frivolity to their relationship that that uh, we, we just, that we really can't feel sorrow for the for where these people are in the general trajectory uh, of their of their relationship together because of of the way to do this it's not very economical in building a, a troubled relationship on film it just no. it's kind of a waste of time yeah it was, it was it's uh it when i read that about the original story i was like wow they really took that in a different direction and i just don't think it worked very well it was um it was just like they were just a a pretty straightforward couple there wasn't a whole lot there now, that being said, I think they went the other extreme with the remake in 2009 um, between uh, David Anders playing Bert and mm-hmm. Candace McClure playing Vicky. They were so antagonistic that I just couldn't, I couldn't stand them, especially Candace McClure. Uh, she was just awful. It was, it was so frustrating. I can't blame it completely on her. I think it's just how she was written, but it was just, it was a, a painful relationship to watch. And I just, never once felt any sympathy toward Mm. either of them. Um, So, you know, I mean, I really do like uh, Linda. I think that uh, Linda's great. Um, It does feel just like it does feel early for her. It feels like early in her career sort of performance. And and she's adorable. And I, I find it hard to fault Linda Hamilton because I do like her a lot. Yeah, and she reacts well to seeing the the blue man up on the up on the crucifix or yeah. the rat. I mean, she she reacts fine to the stuff. And and you know, I will say she does have a couple of good jump moments that still got me, even though um, I still didn't care for the film that much. The scene when the boy is in the road and she goes up to him and, and like he's dead and the body's covered and she goes up to him and then he sits up. Yeah, that that made me jump. Um, and it's actually funny because listening to them talk about it, they told um, they told Linda that they because of you know regulations with you know child labor and all that they couldn't have the kid laying in the street in the street the whole day, and so they just had a dummy under there, and so she was over there, and everybody on the crew knew that it that really it was, was him. That it was actually the boy, and so they had the boy jump up and when you see her reaction jumping back that's actually her reacting because she had no idea 
Yeah, so, that's pretty good. Uh, that was good. That was a great moment. Um, so, and then there was another jump in the house when she kind of sneaks up on Bert as he's poking around that uh, made me jump. But well, the thing I like so much about her performance here is that it really does give you a sense of just how good she can be in Terminator, because as an action heroine, uh, as somebody who really can handle those kind of intense moments of action and and thrill um she does it so much better there that that it it just really kind of shines a light on her capacity uh that um that i i don't think she was was totally on display in this film yeah and and so it but you know so it's it's a win by um by reference yeah i'll give you that let's talk about the kids Ah, yes. Because this is, after all, the uh, horrible uh, children spectacular. That's right. That's right. Uh, These were horrible children. John Franklin is a creepy little dude. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's just five feet tall. And uh, he's, uh, but he was like 23, I think, or 23, 24 when they made the movie. Um, But he works really well, I still think, as Isaac. And as much as I didn't like a lot of the movie, I actually really enjoyed him in the role of Isaac. I think there's something about him that works well in a horror movie. Yeah, I, I think it really does. I think he's he just really fits the mantle that, that they, they cast upon him. And I think he's, um, you know, I, I'm not crazy about kind of wh- the overall story, but I think he, he fit well as the naughty child. Far superior to the Isaac in the TV movie. Mm. Far superior. He uh he is the the sort of bastion of evangelical sort of the center of the evangelical movement in the children and um uh, he he as a leader of of children uh, I think he ends up being actually pretty compelling and uh, pretty scary and this is why I end up liking the first half of the film it's it really is rooted in his performance because um he's the one who makes me really want to see how this would flesh out if there was no supernatural uh, element to it. It becomes much more uh, to me, and I kept wanting this to be uh, a there will be blood moment, you know? Uh, at the end, it was the sort of good versus evil. It was the the slugfest in the, in the, um, in the, the sanctuary um, that I really wanted to see. How did, these, how did these kids get there? And I felt like that was so missing and could have made a really terrifying movie. Um, but it was all thanks to, I think, the way he uh, he pulled off that intensity. Um, and how lucky is it that they would find this guy uh, who could come in and do this at 23 years old and and uh, uh, be the man that they be the kid that they needed him to be uh, in, in such a an intense and scary way. He had apparently like just moved to L.A. from Chicago, which interestingly, he just got done performing as Miles in the play of The Innocents <laughs> <laughs> that he left Chicago yeah. for L.A. And he um, he came out there and he I guess he's just one of those interesting guys. He's got a really interesting look. He started getting cast right away. Like he really didn't have a hard time breaking into the industry. He was immediately cast in a couple commercials and uh, then this. And um, so he got this part. And then he was in some, uh, he actually ended up being in a video game for a Star Trek, um, I mean, a commercial for a Star Trek video game. Um, 
right before he left town to shoot this. And they actually, they cut his hair to make him look like a Vulcan because he was going to be a Vulcan in this commercial. And he's just like, you know, I, I'm leaving town tomorrow to go film a movie. I don't know if they want you cutting my hair. And they're like, oh, that's your problem. And so they cut his hair to be a Vulcan. And he showed up on set and they're, he's like, I'm sorry, this is what they did to my hair. And, and uh, Fritz was like, no, it's great. I love it. It looks weird. It's perfect. <laughs> We'll so roll with what we got. Smoke, right. smoke if you got them. <laughs> Low budget, baby. So awesome. I think that uh, speaks uh, <laughs> well to just kind of that overall uh, weird look that he has. That short haircut, I think, also exemplified a lot of that. And it's- and he actually ended up returning in Children of the Corn 666, Isaac's Return. Yeah, and I think he wrote it. He was one of the co-writers on yeah. it. That's right. I actually started watching it today just to see what it was like. What was your opinion of it? And, you know, apparently what happens is Isaac doesn't die at the end of this. Um, he, I don't know if he takes Malachi into the corn and then gives Malachi to, well, I guess he who walks behind the rose dies. But he ends up in a coma. Isaac's in a coma. And he's been in a coma for 19 years. And the daughter of... Uh, Burton Vicky, not of Burton Vicky, the daughter of um, Rachel mm. and and Amos. I think Amos is the one who cuts the star. Has the he's turning nineteen. He cuts the star in his chest and he's sacrificed to he who yeah. must walk behind the rose. Yeah, and I think Rachel is his. I think that she's the crazy wife who tries to kill Bert right at the end. I could be wrong though. I'm not quite sure. That was a, anyway. Ugh. Anyway, her baby, um, she has her baby. Um, the doctor in town uh, hides the baby and says that her baby died and they bury her. And um, this baby, they go, gets adopted and all this. But she finds out that she's from Gatlin and she's part of this whole thing. She goes back to find her mother, uh, played by Nancy Allen, of all people. Mm. Yeah, and um, and because she's come back to the town... It awakens Isaac from his coma, and now he is, you know, trying to get her. I don't know. Then it just got turned nonsense. The whole thing was nonsense anyway. But I, uh, I did not watch that one. I did watch uh, a bit of uh, Children of the Corn Genesis, ah, which is the I most didn't... recent one. Right, right. I watched some of part two also. I was, I was really fascinated by the fact that this. This has spawned such a big franchise of these horror films. So I ended up watching part of two and part of six just to see what it was. And, you know, they are typical low-budget sequels to uh, a horror franchise. There's not much there. And the budgets are low and the stories are dumb. But people who are a fan of the first one kind of keep it going. I mean, that's why Friday the 13th has so many and, and Halloween and all these things. So... Um, although I prefer both of those movies, uh, yeah. the originals, to Children of the Corn. So, um, but yeah, this is just another one of the series that just kind of keeps cranking them out. So, beyond uh, John Franklin, the other uh, sort of primary child was Malachi, played mm-hmm. by Courtney Gaines. Yes, uh, very is, bucktoothed at the time. Yes, indeed, he is. Uh, he, he has been very busy. He is a busy boy. I mean, I worked with him uh, what four years ago now. Yeah, I think that's is that ambush at Dark Canyon. Dark Canyon three right. years ago. Yeah, yeah, we filmed that uh, together, and uh, yeah, I mean he's a great guy. I really uh, enjoyed working with him. He's a lot of fun. 
I think he's great at the roles that he does. I mean, he really puts his all into Malachi. I'll give him that. Yes. He really gets into the role and uh, brings a lot to uh, to that character. It's just, it's a shame the rest of the movie just isn't there. For yeah, him. I think so too. He is, I, I think in terms of the look, in terms of just general casting, if you look at how good uh, the the kids are at, at really completing the image of the Children of the Corn, uh, he absolutely nails i what i think is kind of a difficult uh, a difficult age and and uh personality in this film of that kind of mid-teen minion thug right yeah. i think oh, he yeah. really does it he really he does a great job of of making him making me really hate him uh not just because the film is annoying but because i just really hate him uh and and i and uh, that's you know uh, I think I call that another little win. So the music and then two of the kids, those are good things about this film. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. I will say Job and Sarah, I think, you know, Robbie Kiger, Anne-Marie McAvoy, I think they're really cute kids who work really well in the role that they're given. Robbie Kiger, um, I really kind of, he was a kid that uh, was one of those that I kind of grew up with because he was also in Crazy Like a Fox TV show that I loved watching. Oh, that's right. He was in The Monster Squad, which I didn't love, but uh, he was in that. Um, he's just one of those kids that that kind of was a kid when I was a kid, and so I always enjoyed seeing him on screen. But um, this was one of those additions to the script that the producer felt we needed to have because they didn't want to just leave the kids as the antagonists and and not give the audience any kid to root for. Oh, so we needed so, the kid we needed the kids to be part yeah. of the family at the end. They needed some cute kids. So yeah. it didn't feel like all the kids are bad. And so they wrote Job and Sarah in and I just think they're terrible. I mean, it's an awful addition to the script and the like the comedic banter between Job and Bert really tries my patience. Yeah. And it just it doesn't work in context of what they're trying to do with this story. Well, it and the hero it moment, fit the genre, not at all. And the hero moment at the end, you know, where he runs out, they, uh, Bert throws the the Molotov cocktail right into the into the corn and miraculously hits the only road in ten thousand acres of corn, <laughs> dry corn, now soaked with gasoline, uh, and so. The kid runs out into the thing. We have the hero moment where he runs out and grabs the bottle. And it's, it is just painful because uh, it, it just ends up being a really stupid moment between two people that have demonstrated that they're just awkward together. Yeah. Uh, it's just not written very well. And it's, it's, uh, there is no kind of emotional climax uh, in that sequence. And you really want it to be if, you know, you feel like you needed to have earned that. Yeah, Absolutely. It just, uh, it really kind of just, uh, yeah, that just, it fell apart. And, yeah. you know, I mean, the end effects are terrible. Not that, um, again, low budget. I understand all that, but, you know, it just. But this is the same thing with the, like, with the eyes, you know? Like, Ugh. we could do, we could kind of do a lot with fire to make just, just plain fire look good and big. And I, I imagine it would have been, it, it was more expensive to do all of the all of the drawing that they did, all of the coloring with the mark <laughs> the like markers. Yeah, with the silly the face in the fire that they have <laughs> at the end. So bad. It just it's it's pretty bad. The you know I something that 
does end up always um, becoming a problem when I'm reading Stephen King's stories is we do get a lot of this stuff with uh, where he takes the horror and then it turns into some big creaturey sort of thing. And that's where I think a lot of his stories end up kind of just falling short for me. Mm-hmm. And this one, you know, he who walks behind the rose, that whole that yes. whole element doesn't work for me at all here. Now, of course, the rumors in in Kingville are that he who walks behind the rose is actually Randall Flagg. I don't know if there's any um, evidence that Stephen King has ever actually said that. Um, but, you know, it is an interesting thing to think about. But look at the books that that do work, right? That don't go all monstery, except like Cujo works really well, right? That one works great. But it's ones like this or It or yeah. what are the other ones where there's a big, you know, the big demony sort of thing at the end? I can't remember, but... Um, I, I keep thinking about the one with... What was the one where the guy went in and sat on the toilet and the monster came out of his butt? Oh, Dreamcatcher. That was terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I did not get that. But terrible. you know, the be- his best stuff comes when he's trying sort of not to do that. Like uh, yes. 112263, I think, was one of my very favorites of his. And there's no monstery stuff in it at all. Yeah, it seemed like earlier monster stuff in his yeah. career. Like, it, it seems like he's kind of evolved past some of that. Mm-hmm. So, Interesting. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, all right. Well... I, I really, I mean, the, my notes, the, the end sequence is, uh, I think, what did I write? It was the delicious bit of icing on the stupid cake that is Children of the Corn. Uh, <laughs> and and I honestly, I can't remember if I was referring to the, the animation or if I was referring to the, um, the weird tagged on uh, attempted jump moment of the woman in the car with the scythe. Yeah. That was it was so short and so easily like moved past and so not haunting or thrilling at all um, that uh, it just it, it, talk about ending on a whimper. It, well, and yeah, because then all of a sudden you've got this kind of this this weird romantic moment between them talking about the kids, and then it's just yeah, like the, the familial end. moment that we're yeah. trying to have. That's like the end. It's like yeah, wow, so that was abrupt. <laughs> So very strange. All right. Well, the um, I've got a few last things before we uh, close this close shop on this thing. Um, the uh, Stephen King had this to say about it. My feeling for most of these things is like a guy who sends his daughter off to college. You hope she'll do well. You hope that she won't fall in with the wrong people. You hope she won't be raped at a fraternity party, which is <laughs> really close to what happened to Children of the Corn in a metaphoric sense. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So he's not a fan of this one. Which, you Um, know, given his involvement in the initial script that was totally scrapped, like he he had, I think, a real uh, intensity for it uh, originally. It's such a shame. Yeah. I think he got shut out of it and felt like they took it in a direction that he would never have gone in. And he's just like, you know, more power to him. I'm just glad I'm getting these checks every time they make a new movie. Yeah. Here's the thing. Here's the problem. Well, you do your thing, and then I'll give you my last opinion. Okay. Um, Childrenofthecornmovie.com, if you are really into it. It's actually childrenofthecornmovie.blogspot.com, but I think you can go to either one. Um, For people who really are fans of this film, this is the site to go to. It goes through all the different shooting locations up in Iowa. 
um, whether it's uh, Hornick or uh, what is it, Celix or whatever they all are. It goes through all the different locations. It has updates on all the children of Gatlin 25 years later, interviews, just got tons and tons of stuff. So if you are a fan of this movie or you do want to learn more about it, that's where to go. Uh, we can put a link to that in the Wait, show notes. Now, where are you sending people? Because I'm going to childrenofthecorn.com, and that's one thing where it's children, like an Amazon store. No, and if children I go of the to corn children of the corn movie. Oh, movie. Yeah, don't go to childrenofthecorn.com. No, no, no. Somebody Childrenofthecornmovie.blogspot.com. Is... Oh, yeah. See, I can't listen and talk. At the same <laughs> can't, time. I can't do all this stuff. All Children this of the Corn work. Movie is very different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Childrenofthecornmovie.com. Oh, Look at how sweet that animation is. They have little, their little eyes are eyes. flashing just like the, the other one. This isn't sweet. Oh, Village of the Damned <laughs> with pitchforks. Uh, yes. All right. So um, anyway, if you are a fan of the movie, check that site out. Um, the last thing I was going to say before uh, just to wrap uh, my part of this up is um, Diego over on Twitter said, much better than Children of the Corn, uh, check out Quien Puede Matar a un Niño, Who Can Kill a Child. This was a Spanish film released in 1976, and I actually ended up watching it. Even though it's uh, the YouTube link, it's all in Spanish. Um, I've got enough Spanish in my head to make my way through it, even though I missed quite a bit. But I did watch it, and I actually did enjoy it quite a bit. And interesting um, that you said, Pete, earlier that taking that story without the supernatural element and just having these kids all of a sudden kind of turning and killing everybody, this is much more like that, and it's much freakier. I really enjoy the way they do that. They, there still is a weird supernatural, like, why? Are, what is causing these kids to turn? I probably missed that part in the Spanish, but um, especially it gets to the part where his wife is pregnant and somehow these kids kind of get to the baby, and so the baby actually kills her from the inside out, which is a little silly. But for the most part, it was much better than Children of the Corn. It has a much uh, creepier vibe to it, and it uh, it just kind of looks at these adults like, what is going on with these kids? And gosh, can I actually kill them because they're these cute little kids? And it's, it's actually a pretty interesting little film. So I would recommend people who um, didn't get much out of this, maybe if, if <laughs> brush up on your Spanish and check out the YouTube link where you can watch the full movie. All right. All right. So we'll put that in the notes too. Yeah. Uh, I my Spanish is probably not good enough to get me through it. <laughs> it's there, yeah. There's a lot of Spanish. All right. <laughs> well, it's although in interestingly, so there's a lot of, of Spanish. Interestingly, all the credits are in English. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what was going on there, but that's that awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, so we need to talk about numbers then. Yeah, it cost. Uh, like I said, it cost eight hundred thousand dollars to make, with another five hundred thousand going to Stephen King adjusted um that all comes out to about 2.9 million when you adjust it for today's dollars um you know not bad it looks like of that um uh it ended up making domestically about 14 point about 14.5 million dollars adjusted that's about 32.6 million so you know it did pretty well for itself um made about $320,000 per finished minute which I guess is enough to spur all those sequels. I think we should uh, rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, everybody, and make sure you go there, you sign up for an account, and uh, start ranking movies. And you should, um, you know, you want to make it easy on yourself. Start with this one. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? 
Sure. Start with Children of the Corn and just just rank it, and then everything else it it will be it, it will it will just flow. All right, Children of the Corn or the Bad Seed? The Bad Seed. Absolutely, the Bad Seed. Children of the Corn or the Sandlot? Sandlot. Sandlot it is. Children of the Corn or Major League? Major League. Major League, yes, sir. Children of the Corn. Ah, here we go. Stephen King or the Dead Zone? Uh, Dead Zone. Dead Zone, yes, indeed. Children of the Corn or Scoop? <laughs> scoop. I I might put Children of the Corn on over there's, Scoop. Pete. There's only one challenge uh, on this list for me with this movie, and I think you know what it is. I, I'm hitting a point where I'm going to be challenged for the rest of these because, I mean... I have a thing. I can easily watch a bad horror movie. Like I can very easily sit on the couch watch a bad horror movie much more than I would put on Scoop. I, you know I'm, what? I'm, I'm picking Children of the Corn on this one. Seriously? Yeah. What about ScarJo? That, it, it was such a bad she's, movie. She's so sweet. She's so sweet, and it was so bad. That movie was so bad. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you to the mat on this one. I think it deserves okay. to be even further down than Scoop. Okay, all Ready? right, that's fine, yes. One, One two, two, three, three scissors. scissors. Aha. Uh-huh. One, two, three, scissors. Oh, criminy. <laughs> Sorry. At least you know it's in the bottom of the list. All right, what's next? Is there a next? Children of the Corn or Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? Definitely Mad Max. <laughs> Mad Max. Children of the Corn or the Hospital? The Hospital. The Hospital for sure. Children of the Corn or Alien Resurrection? I will take Alien Resurrection Alien over this. Absolutely. So that's it. Number 202 out of 208. It's only ahead of Scoop, Strange Days, Pritzy's Honor, Apt Pupil, Rush, and Under the Cherry Moon. So it's not the lowest Stephen King movie. Apt Pupil we actually have ranked lower. See, and, and I will tell you, now that we have watched Apt Pupil more recently, where would you rank those? Hypothetically, had that come up, where would you rank those? I would rank Apt Pupil above Children of the Corn. Yes, that's my problem. But see, I would rank Apt Pupil above Scoop also. I think Scoop is the problem. Scoop I think never Scoop came up to... against Apt Pupil. Scoop is I'm a problem. Probably not. Scoop needs to be much lower. Much lower? There are only eight movies left, Andy. It needs to be right above Rush. <laughs> that's where <laughs> see, I would put that's Scoop. where I would put this. <laughs> I needed this to get down there, Andy. Well, that's what we should do. See, Children of the Corn and Scoop both should be moved between Apt Pupil and Rush. Are you telling are, the... me, are we making an executive decision right now? Are we allowed to do that? <laughs> it's, it's our I think we should. Sight. I think we should. Let's do it. Yes. Make that happen. All right. Scoop is going down. We're re-rank. This is a first. This is. We are breaking uh, tradition here because we are actually doing a re-rank. Yes. We've yeah. never done this before, except on our big except for during the show. big re-rank, where we actually re-ranked every movie. That's right. All right, Scoop loses to Major League, loses to the Dead Zone, loses to Children. Of I'm gonna the I'm court. gonna play montage music while you're doing this. Loses to Apt Pupil. Scoop to Apt Pupil. It loses to Apt Pupil, right? I don't think so. Scoop. That's the. Oh yes, no yes. Scoop loses to Apt Pupil. Yes, absolutely. And then Scoop and Rush. I think we decided Scoop beat Rush. Scoop beats Rush. Starting at 200, The Hospital. 201, Alien Resurrection. Strange Days. Pritzy's Honor. Apt Pupil. Children of the Corn. Scoop. Rush. Under the Cherry Moon. Good. I'm, yeah. 
That leaves it a 205 out of 208. All right. No, I feel good about that. I feel much better about that. I do too. I feel like, uh, you know, it's a... Something that we had to do. Now, if we really wanted to, to be more authentic, we would re-rank Under the Cherry Moon. <laughs> <laughs> if I recall, there was, a, there was a rock, paper, scissors moment in there that torpedoed that one below Rush. Yes, I think there was. <laughs> it's hard to make Rush the oh, brunt dear. of terrible movie jokes when it's not the lowest movie on the list. I know, and it's hard to make terrible movie jokes about Under the Cherry Moon when it's one of our guilty pleasures. Exactly. Do you see? This is the thing. This is the conundrum. I hear you, man. I hear you. Hey, what's your letterbox ranking for this one? We really want to put that. Do we really want to celebrate? We watched this in letterbox. Can't we erase that? This oh, is that. What is the lowest we can give it? I think we've got I, to give it the lowest we can give it. Is it a one? I'm star? not giving it the lowest. I I enjoy the kids, the two kids, the two leads, and I enjoy the music. I give it one and a half. I give it one. Okay, Andy. So we we finished. We finished the Horrible Children series. Do you have any final comments about how horrible children can be on film? I think that um, there is something great about, um, and and super scary, about having children be the bad characters. It is really off-putting, and I think that's why it is really effective in some of these films. Um, I I think it would be an interesting series to revisit um, if we could find some more recent works that really kind of exemplified why it can work so well. Because the recent works that we've uncovered just here are not celebrating how it works so well. No, exactly. Yeah. The Innocence, I think, is the peak here. And yeah. The Innocence, I think, is just a really fantastically creepy film, works really well, and I'm really glad that we did the series, if for only to talk about that movie. I absolutely agree. And I doff my hat to you, sir. Thank you for <laughs> adding that to the list. Where do we go absolutely. from here? We are going to uh, do a little three-part Hayao Miyazaki series, which is going to be a lot of fun. I, for, I think this is our first foray into animation, right? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I believe it is. We're going to be starting at his beginning of the career with uh, Lupin the Third, the castle of Cagliostro. Then we're going to jump to My Neighbor Totoro and end on his last film, The Wind Rises. Setting it up for family movie night. Absolutely. How great, because I haven't been able to watch a movie with my kids in a long time because of this stupid series. <laughs> You watch? I thought you watched uh, *Village of the Damned* with them, or what, or was the *Bad Seed* one of those two? It was. Yeah, it was. I did. My. I. I think I, my daughter was in with *Bad Seed*, but this *Children of the Corn* would have been a bridge too far. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, hey, uh, good talk. Uh, but for now, I gotta go to bed. All right. I gotta go wander through the rows of corn. You know, what we didn't talk about, Andy, is uh, something that my Amazon reviewer digs into, which is the number of movies, uh, adaptations that have been done from stories in Night Shift. Uh, This is from uh, John Page in 2006. Once again, a King story is ruined on film. In the short story collection Night Shift, Mr. King gave us some of his best short stories and spawned at least six movies that I know of. This mess, Trucks, twice once by King as Maximum Overdrive and once as a TV movie, Night Surf, the Boogeyman, 
not the new one, Graveyard Shift, The Mangler, and maybe more, and not one of them has been done right. This misses by a mile as it tells of the cult of kids who will kill adults in a town and serve he who walks behind the rose. More like we stepped in something behind the rose. We stepped in a flaming piece of junk. Skip it. And I think we've just determined that it's actually much more than six movies. It's more like, what did we say, ten? It's six feature films, four TV adaptations, and then ten of his dollar baby adaptations. Those are where he, somebody pays yeah. him a buck and they can go make a short film uh, from one of his shorts. So we've got um, Children of the Corn, Cat's Eye, Maximum Overdrive, Graveyard Shift, uh, and The Lawnmower Man and The Mangler. Those are the, right. the feature film adaptations. Television adaptations, sometimes they come back. Uh, Trucks, Battleground, and Children of the Corn. Uh, again, that was the remake of the sci-fi production. And then, oh my gosh, all the Dollar Baby adaptations are 10 of those. So there's yep. uh, a lot of them. Um, so this, uh, you know, man, Night Shift. And I guess I should say, you know, Cavalier and Penthouse and Ubris and Cosmo, all of the uh, magazines that had originally published these short stories. Um, uh, yeah. The collected works, they really, it's tough to find really standout films as a part of that. Maximum Overdrive, really? Well, that was Stephen King's uh, directorial debut. Uh, I know, it was and a tough it was, one. yeah, it was pretty terrible. He admits it. He admits yeah. it. He was coked up the whole time and doesn't know what was going on. Well, you know, you do what you got to do. What's yours? Mine is a five star. I decided to go oh, the yeah. other route. All right. Yeah. Well, you know why not? Uh, five star by William Dorfer, who loves it. Children of the Corn is one of those movies that leaves a connection with you after you've seen it. I remember when I was 11 or 12. See, this is what it's all about, Pete, seeing it at that key time in your life. And this movie was on TV right in the beginning in the coffeehouse massacre scene. I remember being so frightened I had to switch channels. Being older, I can say that the movie's not as terrifying now, but Children of the Corn still has an eerie atmosphere that entices you all the way through. If you can get past what may seem silly aspects that climax toward then end and enjoy the movie nonetheless, then Children of the Corn will definitely be a great great watch. It's one of those 80s classics that's still just as entertaining, eerie, mystical, and captivating now as it was in its own time. The setting in the abandoned little Midwestern town is the perfect setting for this sort of movie, so that beefs up the quality of the film right there. In addition, the acting is quite good, and Isaac is one of the most sinister little punks I've ever seen on screen. Malachi, too, plays an awesome villain, but whereas Isaac plays the darker, more evil villain, Malachi plays the more nuts-out, kick-ass sort of villain. The two of them work great together and lead the evil flock of children. God, it's starting to take its effect on me again. Although Children of the Corn doesn't really have the humorous breaks in it that a lot of other horror movies do, it's certainly a great and enjoyable movie that's most likely to captivate you with its dark, mysterious atmosphere. Pick this up in time for Halloween, too, to give you an extra reason to be scared and to love this time of year. Thanks for the time and peace. Peace out, William. Glad you <laughs> love this one so much. That's pretty good. Oh, yes. That yes, is indeed. pretty good. All right, I'll take it. Amazon. By the way, Pete, Hmm. it's called a double whammy. I looked in our glossary. When you watch a movie you've cherished since childhood but haven't seen since, then only to find that not only is it not as good as you remembered, but also that you have now ruined the memory you had of it. That is a double whammy. We call that a double whammy. Yes. What were we being so funny about that double whammy seemed the appropriate term for that? It was Rush. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Rewatching Rush really was a real disappointment for Pete. He really loved his memory of the coolness of Jason Patrick and the hotness of Jennifer, Jennifer Jason Lee, but watching this film again really ruined that memory. He also realized how much he didn't like the film. Usage. I rewatched Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, and man, what a double whammy. <laughs> 
okay. No, I get that. That's good. Yes, it worked pretty well. Yeah. So, That's a double whammy. Go. We should study our own vocabulary. Clearly. I know. I feel like we need to use these sometimes. We've got a whole lexicon ready for people to <laughs> throw our way. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>